This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Folklorica Slavica, the series in which we will explore the folkloric landscape of the Slavic world. Here we will encounter the witches, demons and spirits that haunt the forests, lakes, mountains, urban spaces and even bathhouses of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and more. If you've ever been intoxicated with the arboreal sensuality of leaves glowing in the sunshine, of mottled sun glow and cool shadow in forest paths, and the eons of decay and rebirth in rich black soil, then you've participated in a perceptive complex of emotions that perhaps is an intuitive register of the ancient relationships in a forest ecosystem. And during a time in which I was deeply obsessed with the invisible workings of forests, I listened to a podcast episode describing the relationship between a vast complex of nutrient-delivering microscopic fungi and the tree roots they feed. And I was struck by the sheer intelligence, the absolute genius of the exchange between tree and fungi. Perhaps our ancestors also intuited this uncanny intelligence. And in the face of this, how could one not see the presence of the genius loci, of tutelary spirits, those region-specific beings that reside in and protect their woodland realms? And how could one not hear, as Alexander Porteus so eloquently put it, a voice heard in rustle of leaves or murmur of the breeze? If profound emotional experiences can be had in managed woodland, then what of those ancient stretches of primeval forest that covered much of Europe? That covered gigantic swaths of the Slavic lands that will be our focus this episode? What intelligences might be found there? Indeed, in wild forest, in real wilderness, where one can wander for days without even the slightest hint of civilization, is it any wonder that perhaps fae and uncanny spirits might shift and lurk in moon-shirking shadows or run and bask in mottled sunlight and shade? During my forest obsession, I also read a novel of brooding forest terror called The Ritual, and in it Adam Neville portrays these sinister, human-defying forces of primeval woodland, portrays the biting thorns and sucking muck in panic-inducing thickets of a Swedish forest that not only disorients, but terrorizes. Indeed, the primeval forest, left to its own devices, will fester and flourish, perhaps not just its flora and fauna, but also its lurking spirits and preternatural creatures. So from the last bastion of primeval woodland straddling Poland and Belarus, to the mountaintop pine forests in the Czech Republic, from swampish realms in aforementioned Polska, to Serbian forests ringing with shrill hunting cries, 
Welcome to episode two of Folklorica Slavica, Primeval Forest Spirits. Ziewica, the Huntress, Poland. At sunset, the villagers flocked towards the lake by the forest, which now was a darkening veil, like a beast of soil and night in the deep folds of dreams, like darkness of darkness beyond the stars. In their midst, a young girl held a humanoid bundle of straw, adorned with ribbons and necklaces, a hag effigy, whose straw face was strangely corpse-like, with its ridges and gaps, a mockery of the feminine, like a dead old woman being painted with garish cosmetics, in anticipation of her funeral. The girl held the effigy aloft, as far from her own person as possible, for it had been made in the home of the last person to have died from that forest-breathed plague, all swamp goo and hacking congestion and the girl could sense an invisible oozing from the macabre puppet, as if it had reached its saturation point and could not contain the death. For the girl was the death carrier, and she had felt its weight increase as she had stopped in every home of the village, for this year the ceremony went differently. So very many had died of the swamp agoo, that hacking congestion, that the village elder said that the effigy must stop in every home this year, must soak up all the sticky, sweaty death that lurked in corners and cracks. And now, this empty puppet carried all the residue of Marzana's lurkings. This effigy of the death goddess carried her throat-scratching coughs and raging fire fevers and humiliating death tremors. And when the villagers finally arrived at the lake by the forest, they took no time in lighting the hag on fire and throwing her into the lake. And with the effigy went death itself. For months to come, the people, weary of funerary gloom and hollowness, would be protected from sudden and untimely death. And the forest, now a darkening veil, lay slumbering, like a beast of soil and night in the deep folds of dreams, like darkness of darkness beyond the stars. And one foolish young man stayed behind, strong and vigorous, and now, as he imagined it, with a nimbus of spiritual protection around him, he could perhaps look upon a certain birch-slender, pine-towering feminine presence that seemed to waver at the margins of his mind, Beauty like blankets of wildflowers feasting on black soil. Beauty like the ancient cycles of the forest, the death feed that is the soul. Beauty like the howling frenzy of wolf hunts, the crests and consummation of flesh and fur. Beauty like seeds gorging and flourishing. The death-burning, death-drowning ritual had been completed. He was now protected from any kind of sudden death even that of sudden fear. Surely, surely he could look upon her. Yes, he would venture deep into the wood tomorrow at noon, and he whispered his promise to the birches, who shivered in a breeze, as if in anticipation. After hours of wandering, after climbing a tree to gauge his location and the dread of seeing nothing for miles, 
The young man lay down on the forest floor and slept. He was roused suddenly by a loamy smell, by titterings and snickerings, and the immediate image that assailed his mind was that of creeping, fungoid beings, half slithering, half lumbering. There were kirka mushrooms, the color of citrus-kissed honey and golden sunlight. There was the mean tottering of the poisonous fly agaric, red with white dots, an innocent gnome cottage but with witchery and poison inside. There was a white-capped mushroom toddling with the ridges on the underside of the cap like gills of a sea monster amphibian. So rich and mind-consuming was this smell that the images felt utterly real. The youth shivered at the thought of crawling madcaps and creeping milky caps, little fungus mouths sucking at the soil. The smell increased became sublime in its ancientness with a constant sense of feeding, of the black soil eating away at animal carcasses and rotting wood death. The young man gasped for air, and his vision wavered, and in the black soil he saw the darkness of darkness beyond the stars, and thought his end was near. Then suddenly it lifted, dissipated. Trembling, the young man leaned back against a tree and hugged his knees to his chest. Silence, nothingness, not even a breeze. Then, a slimy huffing in his ear, a nose, large enough to cover his entire ear and nearly the side of his head. He shut his eyes and whimpered, and another slimy huffing nose nuzzled into his other ear, and then he heard the thud padding of canine paws and low, hungry growls a sudden yipping bark and a painful sharp nip on his arm. The youth whimpered when he felt a lick at the back of his neck. Then a sudden withdrawal. Yet the young man could not bring himself to open his eyes, as he still heard little canine whimperings and nostril huffs on the margins of the forest glen. Oh my, and then he felt it. A certain birch-slender pine-towering feminine presence that seemed to waver at the margins of his mind, beauty like blankets of wildflowers feasting on black soil, beauty like the ancient cycles of the forest, the death feed that is the soul, beauty like the howling frenzy of wolf hunts, the caress and consummation of flesh and fur, beauty like seeds gorging and flourishing. And he opened his eyes. Naked, Dew-covered and glittering in the new day sun was Juvitsa. Her hunting spear, gripped in a hand formed from moss and soil and sensuality. Her calves and biceps seemed to twitch independently of her body as if they were possessed by mad March hairs, and from her a sublime energy emanated in waves, nauseating and prodigious to the frail human mind. The youth choked down his gorge as his mind topsy-turvied, his stomach dropping as if falling from a great height. And her eyes, he could only glance at. They were the gray-green of lichen and so rich and deep that they seemed to contain worlds that if pierced, the detritus of eons of forest decay would spill out and choke the known world with riotous, uncontrollable life. Foolishly, the young man caught her gaze again. 
stretched out his hand and groped, as if trying to tear away an invisible veil. And in an instant, the wonder in his mind faded and gave place to the blackest terror. He curled into a ball and wept as Huntress and Hounds rushed upon him, licking and lapping and growling and howling, his mind snapping in the cacophony. And now he wanders village and field, his eyes far away, as if in the deep folds of dreams, his mind distant as if lost in the darkness of darkness beyond stars. No matter how often he bathes, that loamy fungus smell never leaves him, and at times he will stand at the edge of the darkening veil of the forest and howl and huff and titter with inane giggles. And every so often, for a brief moment, his reason will return, and he will whisper amidst suppressed weeping, Mother, mother, why did you let me go into the forest? Why did you let Javitsa come to me? Story 2. The Vilas, Serbia In the pine-laden darkness of Dierdap Gorge, echoing through the Iron Gate, that grandiose gateway through the southern slopes of the Carpathian Mountains, a hungry throat guttural cry saturated the cool mountain landscape. A cry like the rapid hollow echoing sound of the tree-tapping woodpecker, yet containing a human cry constrained by hiccups. And that deep chthonic cry, substantial and present, yet eerily empty, that wood-tapping hiccup, reached through a cottage window, in all the hollow crevices and black caves and endless swaths of force that the cry contained. This reached into the ears of a toddler, frenzied his mind and limbs, made him run in infinity-tinged circles around his weary, husbandless mother, who, soul-wearied and mind-dead, grabbed him by his chubby arm and tied the feral child to a table leg. Even then, his infant face was alive with adult ecstasy, possessed by an old soul, and the mother shuddered. With every cry, the child would strain and wail, waddling with unnatural speed to the end of the string and then being snapped back, like a chained dog lunging for a rabbit over and over until the wail became a scream. Mother put her hands over her ears and closed her eyes and whispered, I consign you to the devil. May you go with whom you belong. And one great strained staccato cry swarmed earth and sky before dying out completely, as if agreeing to the pact. And the feral child became a young man, calmed somewhat, but unable to remain with his lonely mother in that isolated cottage. He often slept on the ground and in the perimeters of the cottage, and spent all his days in that mountain forest. And when he screeched back at the crying wilderness with his own wood-tapping, stuttering hiccup of a call, mother would cover her ears until the ordeal was over. Then, one day, the young man saw an elegant, snow-white shape 
as lithe and pliant as the silver birch, weaving and darting amongst the tree pillars of the pine forest cathedral. And when the figure paused to peer at him with a ferocious lupine curiosity, he knew it was her, the one that the Vilas had spoken of in their distant, hungry throat guttural cries, the maiden they had created from pure white snow gathered from a bottomless mountain crevice. She moved with flowing strength, for it was the wind that breathed life into her. Her eyes were ice-cold clarity, for the mountain dew had suckled her. Her tunic was the crisp, crackling texture of autumn leaves and the vernal colors of wildflowers for the forest and the meadow had adorned her. And my, did she entice, for all this was woven together by the ferocity of Mother Forest who could ravage and deplete even the most vigorous adventurer if she chose. Then she opened her mouth, and in that sublime voice was the great hum of all existence, and wind and dew and tree and flower were in those beautiful cadences. Yet, underlying it was the strange stuttering hiccup, like a cry for help in an infinite pit. Well, deep called to deep, so the young man plunged into the forest to pursue the snow maiden, and mother, who could see the hungry snarl in that darkening forest, both wept and sighed with relief. The maiden dissolved into shadow as the young man pursued her into Dierdap Gorge. The sensual satin sheen of the beech trees whispered and pleaded with the oncoming blackness of night to not erase their beauty, and the oak trees were simply gnarled sentinels of this fey place. And as the lowering sun lent a glowing verdancy to the leaves, the young man sensed a huffing, rumbling, rushing over the ground and between the trees, and a drum and a shriek heralded the curdled blue sheen of demon-breathed twilight. A drum and a shriek and a sudden rush of something that sounded like feet mingled with wolf padding, and the youth's bladder let loose as he cowered behind a tree. First, he saw a white flurry of lupine movement as two women rushed into the clearing on all fours, their arms ending in paws and the hackles raised with lycanthropic awareness. They sniffed the air and let loose a scream howl, scuttling on all fours like werewolf puppies chasing a mouse. Then, a sound like drums being furiously pounded in the hollow caverns of the underworld. And my God, the young man cowered, for on a herd of stags with sky-reaching antlers were the velas. The muscles of their arms and legs and buttocks locked and sinewy and supple, like white chalk riches and reinforced with steel. Hair knotted and tangled and strewn with leaves and lichen, golden and as thick as a moss bed in a foggy forest land. And as they raised their mouths to the sky and cried that hungry, deep, guttural hiccup, like the hollow, echoing tapping of the woodpecker, their giant wings would outspread with all the angry, protective energy of the mother swan. It was both a war cry and a call to dance, for now they leapt off their stags and lunged spears into each other's screams and threw themselves bodily into shields. 
the sinewy and supple arms and legs and buttocks became entangled in a gridlock of laughing battle. Such a thunder of mind and will and fist and foot. And where their war games ended and their circle dance began, the young man could not remember. For their battle of raging play seemed to transmute into an infinite circle of animal movement, preternatural frog leaps and lupine frolics and hair boxing and bear growling, all to the rhythm and shouts and calls that both emanated from their voices and movements, but also from incubi and succubi and deep cavernous places. Their colo, for that is what the circle dance was called, was shrilled and frenzied, propelled by wind and dew and forest and meadow. As they encircled infinity, danced its circumference with all the piety of the bloody muzzled wolf, a giantess of pliant marble stepped into the clearing, her stag following behind with bowed head, and the snow maiden dancing happily by her side. The young man's eyes widened with painful knowing, for now deep earth vastitude and sky warrior rumblings and the blackness of blackness beyond the stars seemed to be constrained in her strutting form. And now his eyes widened so painfully that they must have been as large as saucers. Gospodia, Gospodia, screamed the dancing Vila's as she approached. For Vila, Nadaniola, the mistress of the Vila was now amongst them, and she stood outside their circle and clapped her hands in counter-rhythm to her pounding feet, and she became the very base and tenor of their satyr frolics, the very base and tenor of their sweat-slick contourings and caperings. Her stomping feet shook the earth, and her muscles and sinews were sculpted by a beautiful, savage exertion. And when the snow maiden took the young man by the hand and pulled him into the dance, he first felt a wall of energy slam into him with such force that he gasped for air. And then all his limbs mingled sensually with theirs. He mimicked their preternatural frog leaps and lupine frolics and hair boxing and bear growling. He moved to the rhythm of Vila's fierce barbaric clapping and stomping. But while they kept time by the constant hum of the earth and the movement of celestial bodies and the ferocious winds, the young man felt a, a hinge, a string been beginning to break loose inside of him. While the strong velas drew their energy from wind and dew and forest and meadow, the very weak human young man felt his very blood being stripped of its vitality. While the Vilas drank from living streams from dark and infinite places, the young man finally felt himself snap inside of himself. And this ancient winding and dancing, older than the stars, grasped himself within himself and pulled. And when he stood in front of his own body and looked into his own eyes, he saw a grinning idiocy an empty mind. The young man clotted himself in terror, whimpered to be let back in, when suddenly he felt himself begin to lift off the ground. 
his weightless being gliding towards the treetops, his own swaying zombie body now becoming smaller and smaller. Until finally, he was so far, so very, very far, that the Vile became tiny moving dots in the great black vastness of night-shrouded earth. And with terror, he held his head between his hands, willing his spirit back to his body. But he only dissipated into that darkness of darkness beyond the stars. Story 3. Jiva Jona, The Swamp Mother, Poland In many a lowland forest, all drooping moss-covered limbs and mouthing squelching bog, there is a lethargically green and scum-lazy river, with mud banks festering with squirming life. And gathered at a dark cavity hollowed out in this riverside slope is whitish frog spawn and woody debris and surface-skimming insects. As a young mother moves amongst the trees looking for delicious milky caps and kirka mushrooms, she coos into the ear of the gurgling baby strapped to her and feels the mired drowsiness of the place. She cannot shake the sense of something hibernating deep within the quagmire. And every time she comes here, which is seldom, the hair-prickling part of her, that sense this seemed to be the culmination of all the senses. This part of her is always hyper-aware of the dark cavity in the riverside slope, a putrid hole in that fecal-colored clay, the kind of hole in which things either festered or expelled, a sphincter in the earth. Within there is always the sense of movement, the minute mouthings and crawlings of feeding insects. Yet, not a sound or a movement could be heard. Until today. First, a swishing disturbance amongst the whitish frog spawn and woody debris at the mouth of the mud den. Then a sort of muddy smacking sound, as if an infant golem is playing patty cake with the muddy walls within. A playful tittering heard minutely. The young mother trembles during a brief moment of silence. Then, with amphibious slickness and water snake gliding speed, a globulous figure begins gloping out of the hole, with a foul combination of muddy inertia and human intent. The young mother, holding her breath, squats behind a tree, praying her little one stays asleep. And as she freezes like a pursued animal, she watches the figure, a vaguely human outline, just beneath the greenish scum, capering and slithering, agitating the drowsy, swampish river. An array of chaotic bubbles surfaced, and then nothing. The young mother hurried away to her cottage, breathing a sigh of relief when she reached the sun-drenched field at the forest edge. That night, 
when the moon glow blazed through the window and shone on the slumbering infant, the forest seemed to exhale a gurgling wet sigh, and the mother shivered. For at the very same moment something lurched in the dark tree line, and the impression was of a vaguely human figure, globulous and globing, an obese, amphibious thing. The young mother shoved the crib out of the moonlight and into a darkened corner, and then stood by the window, peering out at the forest. The night-darkened figure seemed to be squatting now, like a frog yet with an obviously human head. And as mother caught her breath, she watched the figure waddle with froggish crawling movements into the moonlight, gurgling with infant longing, but underlying it a demonish intent. And as it made slick, rapid progress toward the window, she noticed thick hair matted with whitish frog spawn and woody debris and fecal-colored clay. The drooping breasts between the knees and the ancient grooves and the witch-like features were all clay and mucus and swamp ooze, and the young mother felt lightheaded with the throat-catching terror of it all. Then, a stench. All the decay of a swampish grave filled her nose and her mind, which grew heavy and indistinct, as if her thoughts had been plunged into those miry waters. Then blackness. The young mother's eyes flew open and bulked at the black immensity of the sky, her limbs clamoring to bring her upright and agoraphobic panic overcoming her as she realized she had awoken outside. She surveyed her own cottage, the black windows gaping at her. With whimpering panic, she stood and stumbled towards the door, flinging it open. Catching her breath, she was assailed by the foul smell of flatulence and the sound of a clattering plate, and in her fear, she could only manage a side glance at a miniature, toddler-like movement in the moonglow that illuminated the pantry. When she dared to gaze full upon the scene, her first impression was that of her own dear child, that he had been possessed for a figure, a creature of the same size, sat on the floor. But the arms were all wrong, long and cadaverous, and the mother gasped when she what must have been a head, shrunken and entirely too small, turned towards her. The eyes regarded her with childish glee and demon spitefulness, before turning to the scraps of food that littered the floor and shoving morsels into its mouth. The young mother could only watch frozen as the changeling, for so it was, accidentally knocked over a bottle of vodka, leaned over to sniff it, and then began lapping at the small puddle like a thirsty dog. Something in her then snapped, when she turned her gaze towards the crib and saw that it was empty. Her gut, her womb, the very center of her soul, plunged into that black feeling of irreparable loss, and with equal speed, her feelings of loss transmuted, changed to absolute rage, and without thought, she bounded towards the creature and grabbed it by its foul neck. It shrieked and clawed with wild animal agility, but she did not let go. Then, from every orifice, including its mean, grinning mouth, there came vapors, swampish and flatulent and full of decay. Still, she did not let go. 
and when she grabbed a birch twig from the ground and made towards the rubbish heap, the creature gurgled words, a language of chthonic realms that grated spitefully in her ears. Yet still, she did not let go. Not until she had reached the rubbish heap and threw the screaming, malignant infant onto the mound. Then, with a rage she hardly knew herself capable of, she raised the birch twig and brought it down with whip-stinging force onto the beast's bulging stomach. The changeling howled with pain, but the young mother would not be detoured. For this was the lost straw. With every movement of her arm, her rage mingled with the demon infant screams. Her rage at all her loss and loneliness. Her rage at being dragged, pregnant and unwed, to this lonely cottage. Her rage at the man who had refused to marry her and claim his own. And with every scream, she bellowed the words, Take yours, give mine back. Take yours and give mine back. She stopped. The changeling became silent, for in the trees, just behind the rubbish heap, was her. And then, in a strangely calm whisper, the young mother said, Jiva take yours and give me mine. The swamp mother gloped with the tired movements of a sun-saturated lizard and a fat grandmother. In her arms, all fecal-colored clay and matted hair, was the baby. And before, Jiva Jonah, squatted frog-like with downcast eyes, holding the sleeping infant towards her, the young mother looked squarely into the crone face whose mud-saturated despair felt familiar. In the swamp mother's eyes was the same dead loneliness of a woman who had also been dragged from hearth and home into the wilds. In her eyes was that old story of old women whose wombs were dry and whom nobody wanted. That old story of unwed mothers and their shameful bellies being stowed away on the boundaries of the wild and civilization. That old story of sweat and blood-saturated mother corpses who would never hold the squalling reward of their labors. And then, Jivajona held her swamp-fouled arms out to return the child. And the young mother whispered, Thank you. Story 4 Lesni Mujik, The Forest Father, Czech Republic. From the primeval forests of Poland and Belarus to that great mother forest, the Russian taiga, from pine laden Serbia to the woodland realms of the Czech Republic, there are potent baritone cries containing the great hum of the forest, of all things growing and dying. Indeed, these are the cries of the Leshi. Spirit Fathers of the Forest. And it is in Chesky Rai, the Bohemian Paradise, where Lesni Mujik, the Forest Father, whispered his immensity into the ears of that slithering, snake-bellied soul of a greedy man, who fancied himself lord of mountain, rock, and deep-shaded valleys, and the sublime forest, who fancied himself lord of wolf, and hare, and bird 
and hunted them likewise. And, by Leslie Mujik, he was promptly taught otherwise. As the greedy man rode through the forest, the lifeless, glassy-eyed prizes of his hunt dangled from the saddle and the horse's rump. This man of wealth and lordship was intent on covering the cold stone in his home with the furs of forest creatures, even if that meant killing every last one of them. He had the title Lord, after all, and this thought made him sit straight in his saddle and survey the forest with a territorial air. Then a cry resounded through the forest. The upright royal pines and satiny beech trees were now a darkening veil and lay slumbering, like a beast of soil and night in the deep folds of dream, like darkness of darkness beyond the stars. Something in the prideful man quivered, for he felt warrior intention and paw-padding prowl in the air around him, though all was silent except for burgeoning, nocturnal insect life. And then the Lord froze, for within seconds the cry, which had been faint and distant, was now an intimate, booming vibration on the forest floor, as if a giant had strode over a massive, mind-boggling distance. He spurred his horse on, for even a mind narrowed by greed could sense in this voice the ancient wisdom that told birds when to migrate, and the sensual power that made flower buds flourish. He could sense the very force of the wind and the virulence of forest flora, such immensity like the infinite blackness of the sky and the miles and miles of unbroken forest. This is why he was suddenly surprised by the appearance of a small, hunched man emerge from a thick of trees with mincing elderly steps. The Lord huffed and puffed at the antique figure before him, reprimanding him for nearly frightening his lordship to death. But the old man said nothing, his eyes cast to the ground. The Lord berated him further for his taciturn lack of respect. And when the old man did not reply, he leapt down from his horse and shouted down at the top of the old man's head, who then looked up. And the color of the old man's eyes were the devouring green of moss on dead wood, and eons of decay and rebirth in rich black soil, and endless forest wanderings, world without end. And the Lord staggered back for a moment, for there was also a woven smirk, a lupine confidence in his age-chiseled face. The Lord tried to regain his confidence by shouting at the old man, who finally said, I have been sent to warn you. You've hunted enough, and one greater than you has heard the many poor farmer and herder and forester who you have cheated of game and whose children need furs. There is one greater than you who has heard the lonely cries of the forest, who accuses you of killing fledgling animals, of being a greedy man who will wipe out deer and hare with his greedy ways. Now, the Lord was not a man used to being told that anyone was greater. So he struck the old man and kicked him repeatedly about the head as he lay cowering. Yet, the old man did not utter a single cry. And when the Lord had finished, 
the old man simply dusted himself off and took mincing steps back into the forest. And before he disappeared into the darkening veil, looked hard and long at the greedy man with eyes the color of devouring green moss and tinged with a woven, gleaming smirk. And hours, after hours of wandering the raven blackness of the forest, after chasing a perfect imitation of his wife's voice through impossible, infinite woodland, the Lord knew he'd been tricked. His horse, with terror-widened nostrils, had long since abandoned him, and he stumbled with child-whippering helplessness in an arboreal labyrinth, and his skin and throat and soft belly were so utterly vulnerable. He felt the constant tinge of threatening claw and tooth, anticipated a tearing bite, for at asymmetric moments, with no sense of timing or pace, he would hear mincing steps, crunching large swaths of forest floor, and guttural growls that seemed to proceed from a wolfen belly of infinite black space. And because he could never anticipate the sounds, they scraped and hammered his nerves every time, and now he was in a constant state of tremor. Then, the constant tinge of threatening claw and tooth became nerve-screeching reality. A figure twice his height stepped into a moon-drenched clearing, and the Lord begged for mercy with spittle-soaked lips. He begged the eyes of devouring green moss on dead wood in a face wider than the nothing of closed lids against cloud-diffused sunlight. He begged the gigantic tail swishing like a bull's in the impatient stamping hooves at the end of legs impossibly human and goatish. He begged the face that was as contoured and mottled as mature oak bark and the hair and beard of living grass. He begged Lesni Mujik to let him go. Silence. And the proud lord's mind nearly stabbed in terror. For behind Lesni Mujik now stood a creature, bull-sized but with prominent shoulder blades, haunches covered in matted gray hair, and a slender muzzle with protruding canines. And before the proud lord could register the king of the wolves in his broken mind, the creature loped towards him and bit into his leg with staccato growl and nostril huffs. Then, being dragged across the forest floor, he was granted the boon of nothingness in his mind and fainted completely. And the proud lord eventually emerged from the forest and fell upon the ground in front of his stately home, broken and gibbering. Even so, in his pride, he would never tell of his humiliation and terror in that cave of cold, plutonian breath. His lips would never form the words to describe the mangled form of Lesni Mujik, as sinuous and serpentine and grooved as the very forest itself. No words to describe his towering indifference as he stood behind the king of the wolves, whose rough tongue slowly licked the lord's naked ribs. He could not tell of the helpless dis disorientation of being hung upside down like a slab of meat 
of the weeping humiliation, of begging the lupine lord to stop, to please stop. The rough tongue tickled his sides, and at first he giggled with both terror and sensation. And then as the wolf continued to methodically lick, the tickling became a maddening sensation that made his gut implode inward. It was only when he howled like an infant that they let him go. And he laughed and wept inanely, like an idiot child, until he reached his home and was cradled by his horror-stricken wife. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.